Okay. Hello and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center here at the Lennon School of Economics. I'm Sophie Dunselman, and in this episode, we're talking about the relationship between the United States and the LSE. The connection is as old as the LSE itself, and in fact, it's fundamental to both the original and contemporary identity of the school. But if we want to understand the American experience at LSE, then we have to go back even further, because ever since there have been Americans, some have found their way to London. school trip or a field trip to put ourselves in the shoes or literally the house of one of the first Americans to make the transatlantic trip to the UK. So today we're coming to you from the Benjamin Franklin house on Craven Street in the center of London. Today we have two people with us who know a lot about both the LSE and Ben Franklin himself and we're going to talk to them about Ben Franklin's place in London and the LSE's place in London and how Americans have influenced London and how they've influenced the LSE as well. My co-host Chris Gilson made that trip to speak with two people who have an encyclopedic knowledge on the topic at hand. That's Mick, also known as Professor Mick Cox, Professor Emeritus in International Relations and Director of LSE Ideas. And I'm writing a history of the LSE. Including a chapter on LSE-U.S. relations. He, he came to be agent for Pennsylvania. That was his initial mission. Um, Back to Benjamin Franklin, the original American in London. Um, what brought him specifically to 36 Craven Street, or as it came to be numbered, 36, um, we're not exactly sure. And that's Marcia. Uh, my name is Marcia Feliciano. Um, Marcia is not only the founding director of the Benjamin Franklin House, but she's also an LSE alumnae. And I did my PhD in 1999. Despite never serving as president, Ben Franklin's role as one of the founding fathers of the United States earned him his current spot in the front of the $100 bill. He was the quintessential colonial American Renaissance man, tinkering with everything from scientific inventions and electricity to political philosophy, higher education, and even the early postal service. Forget about the postal service. <laughs> yeah. Okay. He even dabbled in foreign relations, first serving as a spokesman for several colonies in London from the 1750s to the 1770s, and eventually as America's first ambassador to France during the American Revolution. But Peter Collinson, uh, who was a botanist and you know, London figure, uh, a publisher, uh, who he knew um, by writing, um, they, they had a, a friendship from across the seas, uh, recommended this house. And perhaps there had been other lodgers, because Franklin was a lodger in his house. He never owned it. I think it was Carl Van Doren who wrote a 1930s biography of Benjamin Franklin, for which won a Pulitzer Prize, who said that living here at Craven Street, he was less a lodger than the head of a household living in serene comfort and affection, and he even had a cat. 
Um, supposedly, um, Franklin said, house guests and fish are similar because they both start to stink after three days. But he had his niece come and live three years here in the house. And in a sense, this house serves as the first de facto American embassy. Anyone who is anyone coming into London would have paid their respects to Dr. Franklin by coming to Craven Street. Like Benjamin Franklin, Americans have been coming to London since before the United States declared their independence from the United Kingdom. And like Marcia, American students have been coming to the LSE since the school was first founded. In terms of American students at the LSE right now... The current number is, runs close to about 1,000 students. They, 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 there's three kinds, or four kinds of students who come here from the United States. One, we have this, what we call the general degree, which is that one year, it's junior year abroad, really. And that is very attractive, and that brings a large numbers of students here. Uh, John Kennedy, for instance, Jack Kennedy in the 1930s would have done that. So there's that, and that does bring a lot of, uh, of American students here. I think what secondly brings a lot of American students here is that one year master's. That is, that's very attractive. You can get your master's from a great institution, but you do it in one year. In the States, you do it in two years. A, you spend less time, and secondly, you spend less, you spend slightly less money. Uh, for those are the two big groups of American students who come here, and of course, added to that, there would be the undergraduates, who are full-time, that's a bit less, and of course, as we heard earlier on, PhD students who come, come to study. But that junior year abroad is the big draw because it's, so, it's that great junior year abroad that general degree and the masters the one year students who come here very many famous Americans have come here to do the, the one year masters including Monica Lewinsky came here in the, in the 1990s to do one in social psychology and earlier on a, a person who became famous through the film about the CIA Valerie Plain she studied international relationships but they came to do that that one year masters quite often in international relations more quite often economic history anthropology and, of course, in economics. But there's been a strong tradition and connection between the LSE and the United States well before these thousands of Americans enrolled at LSE. Let me go back to the beginning. As you know, the school was founded famously in 1894. The key people who founded it were Beatrice and Sidney Webb. She was a remarkable woman. He was a remarkable man. Uh, George Bernard Shaw played a role. Uh, and also a famous political scientist called Graham Wallace, the four of them together. Each of them, in their own ways, had quite a profound relationship to, to the United States. George Bernard Shaw became, of course, a very famous playwright, very popular in the United States. Graham Wallace, a political scientist, very influential in the development of political psychology in the United States as a subject, quite an interesting figure. But in terms of the precise relationship, it, it, it begins, I think, in 1898, just a couple of years after the founding of the school. Uh, the Webbs now married in this partnership, as they called it. They called it our partnership. And it was a very political um, partnership, of course. They visited the United States on what they called a study tour. And it really was a study tour. There wasn't much fun involved in this. And they travelled from coast to coast before then going on to Asia. And one of the things they wanted to do while they were in the United States was to find out where the key research institutions were. They weren't very keen on the traditional uh, universities in the United States, like College of William and Mary or University of Virginia or Harvard or Yale, Princeton. They, they were especially interested in research institutions. And the two research institutions they had most uh, admiration for was Columbia in New York 
and Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And the reason they liked those two institutions so much is they were very research-oriented, and in a sense, very policy-oriented too. They weren't ivory towers. That's the point. And the whole point of the LSE was never to be an ivory tower. So from the beginning, they got some inspiration for the school from the American, from that American research, very policy-oriented, very engaged kind of research on economic and social and political issues of the day. There was another reason, actually, which I discovered as I read through the Webb's letters to each other and to various other people, which are in, there's great numbers of them, by the way, volumes after volumes, but they're wonderful to read. And the other thing was Webb, Sydney and Beatrice were very well aware that the dominant power in Europe at the time, educationally, was not Britain, it was Germany. And American postgraduate students at this time admired the German institutions more than the British. And the worry for, for the Webbs was the Germans were winning the educational race in the same sense they were winning the industrial and economic race at the times. This tells you some reason as to why they wanted the LSE set up as a scientific place to do social sciences and economics, partly to compete against Germany, but also, interestingly, to try and attract more and more, to try and begin to attract American students to London to study, rather than many of them who still went to Germany to study, to Heidelberg and to Berlin and to all the other great German universities. So he was quite clear in his own mind that uh, this relationship with the United States was partly inspired by some of these research institutions, but partly a way of drawing American students to London, to the LSE, because he thought London had terrific advantage, you know, in terms of location, it's a world city, it was the heart of an empire, and of course it had one great advantage over France and Germany, English language. It was quite clear that it would be, in the end, ultimately more more easy for American students, obviously, studying English language, being English language students, to study here. And in fact, it worked. He, he, he was really quite successful, because little by little, American students started to arrive here after 1900. And they started to come in small numbers before World War I. During World War I, the numbers dropped dramatically. But then, when America then entered the war towards 1917, 1918, and then, of course, the peace process, and the peace negotiations in Paris, Woodrow Wilson. Many Americans were now living in London in very large numbers, uh, mainly soldiers, but also policymakers. Many Americans living here before they went off to, to Paris for the peace negotiations across, across the Channel and in France. So we had about two, 200 serving American soldiers who studied at the LSE after, after World War I. So a very short answer, that's a very long answer, but a short answer to the question... They had, the, the relationship goes back a very long way, and I think the Webs themselves were quite conscious of that relationship and, and the need to build that relationship, partly because they were inspired by places like Columbia and MIT, partly because they wanted to bring American students here, and partly because the English language facilitated that. And as the special relationship between Britain and America developed in the 20th century, I think that also drew more and more... Uh, American students to, towards towards London, towards the LSE. It, Britain was a different country, London was a different kind of city, but it was a city in which a lot of Americans could feel fairly comfortable, mm -hmm. as indeed did Benjamin Franklin in the in the latter part of the latter part of the 18th century. Yeah, <laughs> you kind of feel you're in a foreign country, but it's a foreign country you kind of feel at home. So that's and that. since then, scores of Americans have come to the LSE. So that's that's the beginning. The relationship then, I think, deepens 
over, over many, many years, numbers of very eminent Americans come to study here that have big impact back in the United States. We know the famous story of John Kennedy. JFK applied to LSE in 1935, was accepted, and traveled to London to study here as an undergraduate. But he never actually took classes because he fell ill before the academic year started. We forget that his uh, elder brother, uh, Joe Kennedy Jr., actually did study here for the year. Uh, we know, of course, the great story of the Rockefellers, the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, provided vast amounts of money to the LSE from 1923 onwards to 1937. It was basically one quarter of the LSE budget. David Rockefeller came to study economics here in 1937 before he went back to Chicago. The great American sociologist Talker Parsons studied here in the 1920s before he went on. Later on, Daniel P. Moynihan studied here in the 1950s. Ralph Bunch. Who knew he, Ralph Bunch, anthropologist, first black PhD in the United States, Howard University, came here for a year, uh, studied under Malinowski in the late 1930s, joined the Organization of Special Services, and was an intelligence analyst. A lot of left wing people joined the OSF before the CIA, interesting. And he was then delegated by the Americans to go to Palestine in 47, 48. Nearly got blown up or assassinated at that time. And then was awarded a peace prize in 1950 for his work in the record. And Ralph Bunch is in the peace prize. So he's one of our American, American Nobel Prizes worth, worth mentioning. Paul Volcker, later, of course, a very important figure in the American financial community studied here, and of course the current head or the chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen, was actually a professor at the LSE. So there's an enormous range of important, famous, less famous and less important, but vast numbers, very large numbers of Americans, and that's the reason today we have an alumni association composed of American, American friends and colleagues well, well into the 20,000s, so it's a very, very long and well-established relationship. And that brings us back to a couple of other Americans and their first experiences landing here in London and the LSE. I think, you know, as a, certainly as an American coming to London, we can think about Benjamin Franklin. Um, you know, he, his arrivals are, are quite legendary from, for example, uh, as a young, uh, you know, just a teenager really, leaving Boston and showing up um, on Market Street in Philadelphia with a loaf of bread under his uh, arm and only the clothes that are on his back were coming, you know, um, in his uh, 40s or um, to London and, uh, you know, experiencing the, all of the, the excitement and the buzz and the noise and the, and the, and the dust and the dirt and the, um, you know, the, the sounds of the city. And Marcia's personal experience wasn't too far off. For me, when I arrived, I had never been to... I'd been to London once, but I, I had not thought to visit the LSE campus. Um, it wasn't in my, in my sights that I would one day want to apply there. So I um, found out where the school was on my orientation day uh, after arriving from the U.S., uh, not knowing anyone. Uh, and I uh, arrived at uh, on the Kingsway, and it doesn't look as uh, posh as it does today. 
uh, and, I, and I wandered down um, the, the, the road thinking, I'm going to enter the, the gates of a, of a beautiful campus. It's, it's very much an urban environment, and, and actually um, the students who attend the LSC today are so lucky because you have all these wonderful facilities, you know, the beautiful new library and the, and the student center, and, um, but, um, but I loved it, I loved it uh, then and I love it still. Some American students have a personal or even a familial motivation for coming to the LSE. I'm of British heritage, I'm Scottish-Irish, so a lot of it was kind of um, thinking about my roots and things like that. That's a new voice. That's Gavin. Yeah, so I'm Gavin Baird. I was born and raised in Fresno, California. Went to undergraduate at California State University, Fresno. Um, and now I'm at the LSE studying international relations, doing an MSc um, here on the Marshall Scholarship, which is a British-funded, um, essentially, organization where about 30 or so students from the U.S. come to the U.K. to study various things all throughout the U.K. My great-grandfather um, came to the United States when he was, I think, 12 or 13 because he didn't want to be a coal miner in Cornwall. And wanting to study migration, that was something that I always wanted to go back and on a different, uh, I don't know, different way of, just on much different terms. He left on very poor terms and wasn't essentially a member of his family after he moved to the States. And I wanted to come back and be like, hey, he did well. I appreciate that sacrifice. And so that was kind of the personal motivation. Now, what about studying in the UK? The UK really appealed to me because it gave me the opportunity to study things that weren't what I would consider to be US-centric. So I think a lot of international relations, especially when you study in the United States, it's very much focused on realism and structuralism and things like that. And one of the things that was really appealing about the LSC to me was that you essentially got multiple perspectives. Um, and I thought that in the UK, that would be something that would be really appealing. And the LSC specifically? There were several things. For one thing, they have a really strong international relations program. Um, one of the first books I read as an undergraduate was called Nationalism in the State, and it was written by a man named John Broyley. And I look at a course called Nationalism at LSC, and it's taught by John Broyley. So that was kind of one of those unreal moments. I feel like there are some pretty strong connections between the LSC and the U.S. in terms of my professors. I did politics and economics as an undergrad. Uh, my economics professor said LSC is absolutely the way to go. Um, yeah, my professors were really encouraged by just the nature of the system here and the way that it's very kind of student-driven and you can pick all sorts of courses. And in terms of international relations programs, which is what I study, Cambridge and Oxford are much more structured. And at the LSE, you can take a multitude of courses in various fields. And that was really appealing to me because one of the things that I'm really passionate about is kind of refugee and asylum policy. And so I was able to take a course in the European Institute, which I wouldn't have been able to do if I was at Cambridge or Oxford. So that was great. Also, a university that's really kind of pushing the envelope. It's being innovative. It's always kind of increasing its reputation. So that's a great thing to be a part of. Despite the LSE's long history with the U.S., there still isn't 100% name recognition. Um, I had to explain to a few people that was not LSU, Louisiana State University. <laughs> um, had a few things like that. I think it's becoming increasingly known. From the people that I've talked to on the East Coast of the United States, they know it very well. Um, I think there are a lot of connections between the East Coast, whether it's D.C., New York City, and London. Uh, I think the West Coast is slowly catching up. Um, Los Angeles and San Francisco have LSE alumni networks and things like that that I think are getting increasing attention to the university, which is great. Being a Fresno State graduate, I've actually had a few students reach out to me in the past year and say, hey, I'm applying to LSE. Uh, could you tell me about it? What have your experiences been like? So I think it is kind of getting increasingly known on the West Coast. On the East Coast, I think it's already very well established. But I think that, especially being from the West Coast, you're kind of seeing these linkages being increasingly formed. 
um, you're seeing students from USC, UCLA, Stanford, Berkeley, either study abroad here or do a master's here. You're, um, people that I'm talking to in various programs, I'm finding out that more and more people that study at the LSE are from California. And what about the differences between London life and the West Coast? That's a great question. Rent is a little bit steeper than <laughs> Central California. Coming from essentially a rural part of California, um, it's been a very interesting experience. I tell people that my undergraduate university in terms of square footage was mostly agricultural land. I mean, sometimes you'd see cows just walk across the corridor and things <laughs> like that. And so this has been a much different experience being at the LSE where it's essentially a few blocks in the middle of central London. And I've really appreciated that experience. And that location is no mistake. Back to the Benjamin Franklin House with Professor Mick Cox. Yeah, I mean, the reason the Webbs wanted the LSE to be where it is, which is a very urban university, you can't even call it a campus, really. Not a tree in sight. It is very much a walk out of LSE and you're on the street. But they were quite clear in their own mind that they wanted to be right in the heart of London close to power, close to the law courts, close to the city, and close to Westminster. To the Webbs and the other founders of the LSE, where LSE was located was perhaps as important as where its students and faculty came from. Uh, I think they've always seen LSE as really being a global institution, never a specifically quintessentially English or British one. If you see even the first the first statement about the LSE back in 1894, 1895. What do they want to do? They want to attract people from abroad. Why? Well, think about it. Britain was the heart of an empire. And this was the way of influencing people around the world. Soft power, I think we would now call it educational power. And I think Weber, Weber again, although he's a very British figure intellectually, very located in British socialist Fabian tradition, I think he had a very, very clear idea that you had to make LSE international. That would be part of its impact in the world. And by drawing in people from around the world, not just from America, but from India, that was another very large source of students. You'd make it a much more global institution because LSE was playing a global role. So I think it's quite conscious. And I think once you establish that tradition, it just, just carried on. And then more and more people who come here you know, suddenly find that they're really feeling very comfortable. They're in a very British city called London, but they're in a very international institution called the LSE. If it loses that internationalism, if it, if it fails to attract the overseas students and the overseas faculty, it would be very crucial, uh, then I, I think it stops being the, the LSE. So while international students and faculty, particularly Americans, have come to be integral to the LSE, what about research? What role does research on the U.S. play at LSE? How's that? Testing one, two, three? Is yeah, that what you want? Closer. You want me a little closer? That's Professor Peter Trubowitz. So I'm Peter Trubowitz. I'm a professor of international relations and the head of the international relations department and the director of the U.S. Center. The U.S. Center here at LSE is fairly young, just founded in 2015, and Peter is its first director. So we sat down to talk to him about how the U.S. Center contributes to the LSE. All right, let her rip. As director of the U.S. Center here, what role do you see the U.S. Center playing in an institution like the LSE with such a diversity of concentrations and disciplines? That's a great question. With over 50 faculty working on U.S.-related topics, there's basically no shortage of expertise on the United States at the LSE. Um, the challenge, I think, is helping the school 
get the most bang out of the of all that talent and that's something that the u.s center really strives to do we've enjoyed a great deal of success in our first year of operation i think at the level of public engagement uh, with things like this program uh, the ballpark and that's going to continue our longer term goal is to make the the u.s center uh, an incubator for original research on american politics and society so to cover that public engagement side, but at the same time to provide a platform um, and uh, a vehicle for promoting and, uh, and launching uh, original research on the United States. Interesting. And what do you see as the future of the U.S. Center here at LSE? Well, my hope is that the U.S. Center becomes a focal point for international research uh, and commentary about America's changing role in the world. And certainly we have the talent um, on hand here uh, at the LSE to play that kind of role. The challenge is building up the infrastructure uh, required to support um, regular programming and original research on the United States. And. You know, as I just mentioned, we've taken some important steps, it seems to me, towards this goal in our first year, and the and uh, and what we're looking to do in you know in the coming months and years is to build on that success. Inspiring the founders of LSE and educating emerging leaders in America to encouraging groundbreaking research on the U.S. and its role in the world, the U.S. and LSE influence each other as much today as they did in 1898. We hope you've enjoyed season one of The Ballpark. We decided to wrap up our first season by highlighting the well-worn path between the U.S. and the LSE because we are so proud to be part of the next chapter of this very special relationship. The Ballpark is produced by Denise Barron, with contributions from co-host Sophie Dunselman, that's me, and Chris Gilson, and also with help from the LSE's KEI Fund and the U.S. Embassy in London. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. If you liked this episode, then you'll love the extra innings we put together with Professor Mick Cox, featured in this episode. He dives into even more detail of this historic relationship between the LSE and the United States. Thanks for joining us for Season 1 of The Ballpark, and look out for updates on Season 2. Thanks a lot. This is great. Thank you guys you. do a wonderful yeah, job. Everybody tells me, wow, the ballpark is great. And I hear this from people, uh, you know, in the U.S. as well. So I have people Very that are cool. I know people that are following it. And so it's out there. It's one of the real success stories of the U.S. Center. Great. Yeah, great. Thanks. Thanks, Peter. Okay.